All right, Luke chapter 2, if you have your copy of Scripture, I want to direct your attention there today. We are in week 3 in our series of messages from the Gospel of Luke, and our focus during this time is Christmas according to Luke. Luke made record of what we actually call the true Christmas story. He gives us more detail than any other New Testament writer. And in fact, uh, Luke, between his two books, Luke and Acts, you may not know this, but 27% of the New Testament was written by Luke more than any other New Testament author, more than Paul. Details mattered to him. And those of you who sit here this morning, maybe you would not call yourself a believer, and that's great, I'm glad, I'm glad you're here. But even among the most staunch, the staunchest unbeliever, amidst the traditions that we've added to Scripture or to, to Christmas, beyond the tinsel, beyond the trimmings, beyond all of that, most of us know there is this baby named Jesus born at Christmas time. God planned this baby in the fabric of time. Just at the right moment, Brad Spence read a passage of Scripture from Isaiah 9. And you may not know this, but it was written 700 years before this event. The promise of hope. And it was a time of deep darkness for the nation of Israel. And it is a passage of immense promise. A new day coming. It's a prophetic look forward to the one, the person who would be the embodiment of hope. And as we sit here today, some 2,000 years later, I remember the words of President James Garfield, who said that history was the unrolled scroll of prophecy. Luke, he is no lightweight. He is a historian. He is a physician. Details were his thing. And so he gives us much detail. The details of Christ's birth are laid out. The timing, the circumstances, and the players in the story. Again, the detail. And if you have your Bible, actually I'm going to ask you to turn back to Luke 1. Because in Luke 1, as he opens the book, he tells us why he wrote the book. Look at Luke 1.1. Inasmuch... As many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, and here it is, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So the shortened version of Theophilus is Theo. He says, I'm writing this for you, Theo, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. His reason, an orderly account. This is not meant to be a skipping across the pond, but literally for you to get the meat and potatoes of what actually happened. So Luke chapter 2, let's pick it up there. 
the scripture tells us in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage David, to be registered with, his Mar- with, with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts of God praising and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. I'm fairly convinced that many of you know this story. I contend that you at least know the highlights. If you were raised anywhere near church, if you've been around long enough around Christmas time, this has at least made its way to your ears. Something about Joseph and Mary. And there's this cult, and they are going to this city named Bethlehem, away from where they normally live, and they get there... And when they try to check in to the local inn, no room for them. So they end up in a stable. And it is there the time came for Mary to give birth. You know it. You've heard it. You understand at least some of the parts. But have you ever imagined what it was like, maybe? Maybe, let's just pick up that piece with Joseph and Mary as they come to the end. First of all, Bethlehem is a busy place because others have come to register to be counted. They arrive at the end. Joseph goes in to check out. We just need a room for the night. And the innkeeper says, sorry, full up, no vacancy. And Joseph has to make his trek back out to Mary 
to tell her so. First of all, she's very pregnant. Now, can you imagine that moment? Mary, really, no vacancy, huh? We came all this way, no place. I told you we should have left earlier. (laughs) And then Joseph, under his breath, said, we would have left early if it wouldn't take so long to pack. That's called conjecture. Imagination. There are things that happen in the story that we're not told about. And it's left to our imagination, and it humanizes the story, but it is not explicitly fact in the story. But what I contend with you today is that the things that are in the story have become so familiar to us that meaning has been lost on us. And the meaning has more substance and more fact than often our dull eyes can fully comprehend. So I come to ask you today about that story, about the details of the story, about how do they have meaning for us. Actually, I want to ask this. How does it have meaning for for you? Does the story have specific meaning for you? Because the understanding of the original writers and the original readers of the story, there is much here that we often miss because we have become so familiar that we just kind of skip over it. So let's take those things up this morning. First, this. If you've ever felt forgotten, remember that the marginalized, remember that the misfit, they were the ones that were first told of the Savior's birth. Look at verse 9 with me. It is there that we find in verse 8, there were shepherds and they're out in a field and they're keeping watch at night. And it's to them that an angel shows up and makes an announcement. Savior's born. Something's happening over in Bethlehem. And shepherds to us, we've romanticized them. We remember the shepherds of the Old Testament. And the shepherds of the Old Testament with Abraham and Moses and King David, we have made them something that in the time of Christ they were not. The time of Christ, shepherds were marginalized outsiders. And actually it was worse than that. Shepherds were outcasts of a polite society. Today we might view this as an angel showing up to the lazy, to those who have been or who sexually abuse others. They're the drug peddlers. They're wasteoids. They're the dropouts. It's not an exaggeration to actually illustrate it this way. Shepherds were the despised in Jesus' day. This is not the setting of Abraham and Moses. Shepherds and their sheep were enemies of those that owned farms. Sheep consumed the crops 
Mostly those who could do nothing else found themselves in this job. Can't get the grades? There's a good candidate, shepherd. Sleep during the day? You would rather sleep all day and kind of stay up all night? There's a job for you, shepherd. Walk around with some bravado? Not afraid of anything? There you go, shepherd. Felony conviction. He can do shepherding work. The despised held the job. The social rank was literally rock bottom. And though you may not be a shepherd today, you know what it's like to feel just like them. You know what it's like to be rock bottom. You know what it's like to feel cast off. You know what it's like to be passed over. You know what it's like to never achieve what you really hope for in life. You feel forgotten. You may feel ashamed. You may be angry. You may be misunderstood. And it's to you that the angel comes and says, I've got good news for you. Good news for you. Oh, that we could see. Oh, that we would be reminded that there were no PR firms writing this script for how it would unfold. The players here are not playmakers. There's no ruling class included in this group. There's no Washington insiders. There's no Ivy League educators. These are the ones who have flunked out on life. Life had relegated them to no account. They kind of might feel like they're on the garbage heap. And looking at the whole story, we need to understand that two of the central subjects of the story, Mary and shepherds, were not even considered worthy to be able to give an account in court. They couldn't even appear to testify. And it's to them... And it's to you that God shows up. He sends a message to you. Now, verse 9, we find here that an angel of the Lord appeared to them. It's interesting. We've so romanticized angels that we really don't have a true biblical picture of an angel. But angels are not those little flowing satin things that you set on top of the Christmas tree. They're not necessarily winged creatures. In fact, when they show up, they strike fear through everybody that they come in contact with. So if an angel is on top of your tree, he would crush you at his very sight. Every time they show up, fear typically is present. But what does he say? The angel says, fear not. And sometimes when you're at the bottom rung, you know what it's like to feel fear. You know what it's like to experience it. And some may find themselves sitting here this morning and and you you would not call yourself a believer. You you may be a doubter. You may may have just considered that this is all stuff of legend. 
I really do, don't know what exposure you've been or had to other Christians. But some of you have been exposed to Christians that have acted ignorantly, who have acted with self-righteousness, and their failings are evident to you as they look down on you. And it's caused you to wonder if you want to have anything to do with Christianity. And some of us who call ourselves Christians, we have forgotten what it was like and how far God came to get us. We've forgotten. How he came to rescue us. His grace knows us. And his grace knows you, doubter. His grace knows you. And he comes to you with only willingness. He comes to you when you hurt. He comes to you when you're confused. He moves towards you. He arrives in the midst of your brokenness. He comes to you as you search for meaning, for purpose. He comes to you who sit here this morning that says, I, I just would love a new start. He appears suddenly and he calls you by name. He knows everything about you. And he sends his son, he sent his son to pay the price for your sin All of it. And that is good news. See, when we look at the story, when we look at the details of the story, may we never forget that the good news that's announced here, the good news is for all. But that does not mean everyone. See, there's a birth announcement Happening here. Here's here what we have in Scripture is that the angels are sent to give the birth announcement in Bethlehem. He's been born, and let's get the word out. So the angels are sent, and it's delivered by them to these shepherds, and they say very specific things. They do not just simply say, "Hey, Jesus, someone special has been born over in Bethlehem." Look what it says. Verse 11. Unto you is born this day. Unto you, shepherd. Unto you who hurt. Unto you who feel marginalized and outcast. Unto you is born this day in the city of David. Here it comes. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. The birth announcement has content. Born is a savior. So in order for this to be good news, it starts with an awareness of our need. Salvation language is unfamiliar. It's unfamiliar to many of us. It's language that we use in church and float it around, but frankly, many people just don't know. And it's not just the last few years. Salvation language for some time has not been common. My wife, Amy, more than 20 years ago at work encountered a woman who said, you're religious, aren't you? And Amy said, yeah. She said, well, how did that come to be? And she said, well, Amy said, I I was 17 years old when I was saved. Pause. The lady said, saved from what? 
Safe from what? From separation from God. This is what sin does. Shepherds, these shepherds, they know they are sinners. And when we don't see our sin, you don't see the need. And it's only the hurting, it's only the lost, it's only the confused. It's only the person who sits and knows and ponders and considers, I am responsible for me. I'm responsible. And God pursues that sinner. God comes to him. He comes to us. He comes to the marginalized. He comes to the outcast. He comes to the forgotten. He comes to the one whose heart is broken. He comes to the ordinary. And Luke uses a term here that many of us, We don't know how unique it is. A savior. It is unique. It's a unique word that Luke uses exclusively in the Gospels. It's the word soter. It means savior. Luke does not use the word judge. He does not use the word reformer. He does not say that Jesus is a life coach. He says he's the savior. He has chosen to be the one to save others. Is that a need in your life? Do you need to be saved? Those that are saved, those of us who sit in this room, who know what it's like to come to faith in Christ, to trust Him, it all began with the knowledge, I need a Savior. I need it. And the angels declare it. But not just that he's a savior, but that he is Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord. Now, for those of us who have no Jewish heritage, this may not mean a lot to us. But for the Jew, this meant a lot. It was heavy because they were looking for this Christ, which means the anointed one. The one that's chosen to be before all things. This supreme ruler, the anointed one. And this is not necessarily good news when I say for everyone. Because our self-autonomy runs against it. Christ the Lord is a salvation offered to those who understand that this is not a salvation to just, oh... Yeah, I believe in Jesus. He was born in a manger. He lived a good life. He died on a cross. Yeah, know all that. What an example. That is not the context of Luke. That's not what he is giving us. He is declaring from the lips of angels, here is Christ the Lord. Jesus was born... And we must wrestle with the claims of this announcement regarding this child. Lord. See, love is offered. It's a gift. It's a rescue, not from something outside of us, but ultimately it's a rescue from ourselves. That may mean clearly that your heart right now, you know that your heart may be bent away from God, but it also may include, for those of us who sit here, a more subtle variety of rebellion. And the more subtle uh, variety looks like this. It is, I'm pretty much okay 
It's called self-righteousness. I'm all right. The announcement by the angels was no less a proclamation that the one who is born will ultimately be in control. He is the Savior for which we need to be saved. He is the Savior we need desperately. He is Lord and He is the supreme ultimate ruler, which means that there's implications for you, there's implications for me. There's implications for every man, woman, and child sitting in this room this morning. And everyone that hears this message. And the implications is this birth announcement has titles that actually has with it an affront, a confrontation to our own self-sovereignty. So when I say It's good news for all, as the angels declare. That does not mean everyone, because even as we investigate the claims of Christ, even as we look at the gospel accounts, we find that there is this man named Herod in the book of Matthew. And when when Herod finds out that Jesus has been born and that he he, he is going to be king of the Jews... The scripture tells us that he was troubled by this. And he caused trouble for others. Do you know Herod? Herod was king. And it's good to be king until your kingdom is threatened. Herod knew only one type of kingdom. The kingdom of the earth. Maybe that's a little bit like you. You may be just like Herod. You only know what you can make, what only you do, what only you care about, and your job in life is to protect your kingdom. As long as Jesus remains a good teacher, as long as he says kind things, as long as he's an example, he can even be a prophet. We are fine with him. We love him wrapped in those cloths. We love the idea of him laying in a manger. We like baby Jesus. We like him. But the moment that he makes a claim for the throne of your life, he simply can't be ignored. And we want him more out of our life than in our life when he claims the throne of your life. Our preference is that he would be good and gracious. Our preference is that he would be granting us our Christmas wishes. But to be king and to ask us to follow him, ask us to forsake all other other things, well, the tone of that passage actually becomes a little bit flat when that happens. For it is good news for all, but everyone, that's a stretch. The announcement of a Savior born necessitates a response from each of us. It is one where the rebel, it is one where the forgotten, it's one where the lost, the immoral, and even the indifferent are confronted. And they must reckon with what they're going to do with this announcement. Good news for all touches all people groups. Good news has with it and also an indictment of you 
and an indictment of your need. It is good news, but it is only good when we respond to it in faith. It is only good when we say, I come to place my faith in Jesus Christ as the substitute for and the Savior from my sin. And that is exactly the implication that Luke begins to lay out. So, number three, investigating the gospel. Investigating its message brings you up close to the truth. And that truth can change how you live. When I say that we are so familiar with the story, church people especially, what I am doing is I'm contending that many of us know the highlights. But we've never investigated the claims of Christ. We've never come and said, this baby grows up. What is it that he asks of us? Have you really investigated the claims of Christ? Have you, if you sit here and call yourself an unbeliever, have you taken time to truly study and to truly ask, who is this Jesus? C.S. Lewis did. You may know him as a famed writer of a classic work called the Chronicles of Narnia. But you may not know that Lewis was also an Oxford scholar and a true expert of literature. He wrote many years ago that as he encountered other professors, especially English professors, history professors, and philosophy professors, that they pretty much had the same tune that they sang in harmony. Oh, it's just legend. Oh, it's just poetry. But Lewis said, as he began to look at the material himself, he said, I began to see that's not the content of the material that was written there. It's not written that way. And if you were after convincing veracity, which means trying to prove something that is true, in back in those days, 2,000 years ago, you would never, 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 never put these players at the center of the story. The details played an important role for Lewis. It played an important role because as he wrestled with it, he said, why would anybody put these players in the center of the story? And then he went, unless it's true, it's actually how it happened. The gospel is more than just being exposed to this truth, but to come and investigate and to to allow it to bear on your life. John tells us that Jesus was very clear about his identity. John 8, 24 says, Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin." That is horrible and hard to hear. But it is incredibly good news when you say, Jesus 
is Lord. John 14, 6, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. When we look at this story, when we look at what, John, uh, what Luke gives us, he gives us more than just an overview. Let's see what happens with these shepherds. He says, looking down at verse 15 with me. Look at what happens. The angel makes the announcement, and then in verse 15, the angels went away from them into heaven. Angels show up, make the announcements, angels head out. Now what? Do you know what the shepherds do? They investigate the claims of what they've been told. They go. The shepherds searched out and they found baby Jesus. And it's interesting in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 16, they went with haste and found Mary. This word for found is a unique word. It comes from a verb where we get the word eureka. I don't know about you, I don't say eureka very often. But it's like this. They went and said, we got to go find out. Let's go, let's go. We've been told. And when they go, and they come with haste. And when they find, after a search, found means after a search. They had one of these, wow, oh, aha, eureka moments. And it changed them. The Bible says, and they returned. I mean, they went back to work. Just like you'll have to go back to work tomorrow. Back to the same old job, the same thankless boss, the deadline, all of it. Awaited them just like it awaits you. But they were changed. They couldn't help but open their mouth and tell everybody about it. Look what we found. This is what was told us. This is what happened. This is what we heard. This is what we saw. Pastor Brad, a couple weeks ago, said when we look at Luke, we look at Mary and the details, we see likely the first Christian. Luke chapter 2, you know what you see first? You see the first missionaries. These shepherds, after seeing Jesus... They can't help but tell others about it. Shepherds are tasked with keeping. That's what they do. They keep. But once they encounter Jesus, they can't help but to go from keepers to proclaimers. And they proclaim who he was and what he had done. Luke emphasizes that a life that encounters Christ and the power of of his presence, it's going to bring change. He goes on to use the word amazement more than any other writer in the New Testament. Amazement. So I ask you, is that your experience with Christ? You changed from an encounter with him. And you may sit here and say, well, Brian, I need to go clean up my life. You need to remember the marginalized, the misfit, and 
the forgotten. It is to them that God shows up first to tell them about the Savior. What will you do with him? This is about, in this moment, this is about you reckoning in your heart. Will Christ be Lord? Or will you just continue to give assent that you believe, oh, there was a Jesus? Make no mistake about it, the New Testament calls that Christ calls you to a surrender. To entrust your life to Him. To this Savior born who will not remain in the manger, but will go to the cross for you. And He did, willingly, because He loves you. You are loved this morning. You may not feel loved, but you're loved the truth. And the fact is that you can walk from this place today a different person than when you walked in. And it will happen by faith in Christ as the substitute for and the Savior from your sin. No more self-sovereignty. Jesus will be king. We invite you to that today.